All right, here we go. How you guys doing tonight? Good? Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Let me give you a little heads up. What's going on here? We're going to do half of the book of chapter of Romans 11 tonight. We come back in January. We're going to finish up what's considered the theological portion of the book of Romans, which is Romans chapter 11. Uh, chapters 1 through 11 are kind of considered the theological part of the book of Romans. 12 through the rest of the book is kind of considered more practical. Not that there's not practical in the first part, not that there's not theological in the second part, but generally that's how they're divided. So end of January, middle of January to the end of January, we'll finish up Romans 1 through 11, specifically chapter 11. February, by popular demand, we're going back to it. It's Valentine's Day. We're going to celebrate it. Love, sex, day, and marriage. Four-week series. You want to hear it again. It's world famous, okay? He said, this time I think I'm going to do love, dating, marriage, sex, because that just goes better together, all right? Because, true story, last time we did love, sex, dating, marriage, we did love the first night. That night, we caught people making out in the parking lot. The week after, we come back to Crossroads, and I said, dude, we totally busted people making out in the parking lot. That night, again, caught people making out in the parking lot, except this time, the people who caught them got their cell phones out and started taking pictures. So... I'm warning you now. You just better be ready. So, all right. Romans chapter 11. What have we been talking about for a while? Well, seems like what we've been talking about forever. Seems like we've been talking about the doctrine of election. I've gotten a couple of emails. People saying, why are you dwelling on this? And I'm going, because the chapter we're studying does. Okay. I'm really not trying to push anything. I'm trying to take you through the book of Romans. And Paul has come up with a question of if the son of God, God in the flesh showed up in Jerusalem, in Israel, in the nation that should have been expecting him, how did they miss him? How did that happen? Paul's answer is, is because they were supposed to. And that's really the only answer there can be. Well, in Romans chapter 11, he comes back to this idea. In Romans chapter 9, he's talked about the eternal plans of God and salvation. Romans chapter 10, he's talked about God's eternal purpose for the accepting of the gospel. The only way a person can be saved is the acceptance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 11, he comes back to answer the question, what about Israel? That's what started this whole thing. The whole thing in Romans chapter 9, if you were to go back and read it again, is what about Israel? What about them? And after kind of getting sidetracked and talking about God's eternal purposes in the gospel, he comes back to answer the question, well, what about Israel? And this is how he answers it. In chapter 11, verse 1, he says this, I ask then, has God rejected his people, meaning Israel? By no means, for I am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Verse 30 says, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You see, go back to verse 2 and it says this. Paul answers the question by saying, has God rejected Israel? No. How do I know that? Because I'm an Israelite. This seems like a pretty simple answer. How do you know? Because I'm one. Oh, a good answer. That's how I know. What Paul says is it just seems like God has rejected his people, but that's not at all true. He says the first thing you need to remember is Romans chapter 3, verse 3 says this. Our faithlessness never affects God's faithfulness. 
Our faithlessness, being unfaithful, never affects God's faithfulness. God keeps his promises. What Paul has this whole time been trying to tell the reader is that God's promise was never, I'm going to save all of Israel. God's promise was always, I am going to save my people. And that it is his people that will be saved because of his faithfulness. Now, to give an example, Paul uses the story of Elijah. Now, this is a famous story of Elijah, even though you may not remember it. Basically, what happens is Elijah goes and he gets into a trash-talking contest with all these prophets of Baal. It's pretty good when you need to check it out in the book of Kings sometime. They have this big bonfire contest, and they set up wood, and they say, okay, whoever's God sets the wood on fire wins. And so all the prophets of Baal get around their wood and they start praying, going, oh, Baal, set this stuff on fire. I don't even know how they prayed to Baal with that. They're going to set it on fire. And nothing happens, of course. And so Elijah, it's hilarious, starts going, maybe he's asleep. Okay, that's in the Bible. That's great. He's talking trash to him. And so then they go, okay, well, your turn, big mouth. He goes, all right, go get some water. So they go get like hundreds of gallons of water and they just douse all his wood in water. He goes, no, more water. Come on, all the water you can get. And they just douse it in water. He goes, okay, hey, God, and it blows up. And I'm fine. He goes, oh, yeah. Okay. And so, but then the queen gets all mad and tries to kill him. And so Elijah has to run. He runs and he's hiding in this cave. And then uh, he's calling out to God. And, and you've probably heard this before. And it says, and then there was a great wind, but God was not in the wind. And then there was an earthquake and God was not in the earthquake. And there's a fire and God was not in the fire. And all this kind of stuff. And then it says, and then there was a still small voice. And God was okay. So that's what's going on. And, 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 and Elijah says, God, what have you done? It's just me. Everybody else is dead. They've killed everybody. Jezebel's killed everybody. I'm the only person in Israel living for you. It's me against the world. I'm the only one. And I'm sure you know how this feels. There's been times when you feel like I am the only person living for God. I'm the only one in my family. I'm the only one in this, wherever, in my apartment. I'm the only one. I'm the only one living for you. And God says, it's not true. You just don't see it. The way he answers Elijah is there's 7,000 people that I've kept from bowing to Baal. You just don't know about it. Paul quotes that for a couple of reasons. First of all, to assure the Jewish readers of his time, the Gentile readers of his time, that God has not rejected Israel. But keeping in line with Romans chapter 8 through 11, he's saying all of this is part of a plan. It's all part of God's bigger purpose. It's all part of something bigger. Verses 5 and 6 says, So too at the present time there is a remnant uh, chosen, the word elected, chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. That's verse 6. You know, what's funny to me is you get in here and you start talking about one of the most controversial doctrines in the entire Bible, election, sovereignty of God, and all these kind of things. And I've gotten just a few people asking questions. That's great. I encourage that. I want you to ask questions. But I actually got more violent emails over teaching that you cannot please God with your works. When you stand up in front of any church and you say, your good works do not justify you before God. It is only grace. You can do nothing to improve God's vision of you. It has to be grace. You would not be surprised how you'd be shocked at how many people go, what? You're crazy. And go, the Bible teaches salvation by grace. Yeah, I know. And I earned that grace. Okay. 
You're right, you do. Calm down, dude. Um, and all, all through human history, the great Christian heresies always come back and try to reinsert works. You got to earn it. You got to do this just right. If you're not doing it this way, God can't save you. Just to make some scrap of it about us. But notice verse 6. Notice what Paul says in verse 6. He says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. And if it were, if it were otherwise, grace would not be grace. I, I cannot fathom except for the schemes of the devil how this is not plain to people. Are you with me? I mean, there's some times that I get up here and I, I'm teaching through the Bible and I kind of go, okay, you know, well, some people think this, some people think this, this is what I think. And there's other ways. And I'm not going to say this is the absolute way. This is the way I'm going with it. If you go this way, cool. If you go with, well, you're some works. You're not a Christian. You can't be. I, I can't, I'm not twisting this verse. You have to see that. There's no, oh, well, he could take it. No, if it's not grace, if it's by works, then it can't be grace. Paul's trying to, to come back and say, listen, Israel, here's the deal. You're still seeking God with zeal, but not with knowledge. You're trying your many good works to earn God's favor and you've, not learn the first lesson, which is it's impossible. God has to gracefully forgive us and has done so. The good news of the gospel is that we don't have to earn God's forgiveness. It is given freely. It is grace. Read Ephesians 2 sometime. But notice here, because what Paul's about to go into is a very simple purity of meaning. He says this, if it's by grace, then it's not by merit. Meaning God didn't look ahead and go, oh, well, this guy's pretty good. This girl's pretty good. I'm going to get her. It can't be that or it's not grace. If it's by faith, it can't be by works. They negate each other. And if it's by God's initiative, then it's not by ours. You see, if works have any place, then grace is irrelevant. Verses 7 through 10 go on and say this. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. This is a summary of chapter 9 and 10. What happened to Israel? Number one, they sought a relationship with God wrongly. They failed to obtain it. Why? Because it was by grace. It was not through works. The elect obtained it. The rest were hardened. We've already gone through all that in previous messages. But Paul wants to reiterate the point to make absolutely sure the reader knows what he means. The elect obtained it. The rest were hardened. Verses uh, 8 through 10 say this. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Meaning, literally, God made them stupid. That's hardened eyes that would not see ears that would not hear down to this very day. Now there's a couple things going on here that I need to show you. Number one, 
The second part of this verse, the phrase eyes that would not see ears that would not hear down to this very day. That is a set of scriptures from the prophets that is used in every gospel and the book of Acts. There are only five things that are con- uh, there are only three things that are common to all four gospels. If you're at all four gospels, you see how they're very different. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are really similar, but there's some differences. John's totally different. There's only a few things that are, are in every single one of them. This is one of them. If you're saying to yourself, man, I've never heard this before. I don't understand what he's saying. How could God harden people where they wouldn't hear him? I just don't believe that. It's in every one of the gospels. It's in the book of Acts. It's right out there. That's the picture. What's more is this, is God gave them a spirit of stupor. That comes from the law. That comes from the first five books of the Bible. It comes from Deuteronomy. Eyes that would not see, ears that don't have. That comes from the prophets. And now look at what the next verse is. It says this, verse 9. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. That's David. That means it's a psalm. And the Hebrew Old Testament is called the Kethubim. There's, there's three parts of it. In the Old Testament, the Jews considered there to be three portions of the Old Testament. The law, the prophets, and what's called the writings, the Tanakh. All right, the writings. David is part of the writings. Paul is symbolically showing something. The law, the prophets, the writings. The whole Bible is pointing to this in his understanding. The Old Testament. The whole Testament is pointing to this. And I mean, that's a harsh verse, isn't it? Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Wow. Now, verse 11 comes back around where Paul says this. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? And that means the word fall there is kind of hard for us to get. It's in a verb tense in Greek that means forever. Are they forever fallen? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. You see, the Bible is full of things that look like amazing tragedies and amazingly harsh things that God turns around and is a blessing. Consider the cross. I don't know if you get this, but on the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, the disciples were all sitting around going, so what do we do now? I don't know. They're pretty much going to kill us tomorrow. So what do you want to do? I don't know. PlayStation? Sure. I don't know. You know, what do you do? Saturday's a bad day. Jesus is dead. They're in hiding. It seems like the worst possible thing can happen. What is the end result of the cross? You know, it's salvation for the world. What Paul comes back to trying to show is this, is that even in God's righteous hardening, number one, when we look at Israel being hardened, the first thing we do is go, that's not fair. And that's the first thing we should not do. God can harden any sinner he wants to. It's judicial. It's legal. He can do that. We say that's not fair. What we don't see is that God is saying, I'm doing this so that the gospel can go to the world, to the Gentiles, so that everyone can hear. There's a reason I'm doing this. And it's so, I don't know, you will be sitting here 2,000 years later. 
See that what Israel's been hardened is clear. Did they stumble? Were they hardened? Yes. But through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, Paul puts forward a very intriguing thought in verse 12. You got to follow along here. He says this in verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world. Now, follow what he means here. He's saying they trespassed. They were hardened. And because of that hardening, the riches of the gospel came to the world. Are you with me? He says, now their trespass meant riches for the world. And now he says this. And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their their full inclusion mean? Now this verse, that last part of that verse, is, is what is called eschatological. It means it points to the future. Don't try to spell that. It starts with an E, so you already misspelled it. It's eschatological. What Paul is saying here is this. Look, if the Jews rejecting Jesus brought you the gospel, brought the riches of the gospel to the world, how much more, what's going to happen when they start believing the gospel? You see, if you read the Old Testament prophets, all the Old Testament prophets point toward a day in the future when all of Israel is going to be gathered up and the Lord's going to come back. I mean, the Lord of every person on the earth. And, and you hear this language all the time and every nation, every tribe and every tongue is going to come and bow before the Lord and they will worship. You see, when Israel comes back to the gospel, that's when Jesus comes back. That's the picture the Bible tries to paint for us. Now, I want to give you a a little small geographical slash history lesson. And I'm going to give you the history of the biblical world in five minutes. Okay? So prepare yourselves because you're not ready for this. All right? I'm going to show you a map. By the way, I got a new laser pointer and it will burn your eyes out. Okay? I'm warning you right now. Okay, let me show you this because Rick Dunn lost my laser pointer and then he found it again because his kids had it. And uh, look at this. See, here's my first laser pointer. Can you see that, right? That's kind of weak sauce, right? Now watch this one. <laughs> right? You like that? You like that? See, I'm burning out. Uh, see? Now, what's really cool is we got Christmas colors going on. And after Crossroad tonight, I'm going to do a 30 minute laser show to the Charlie Brown Christmas thing. Okay, so it's going. Okay, so anyway. All right. What you got here is the Holy Lands, all right? Uh, just to kind of get your bearings right, you got. This is Israel right in here. You see Jerusalem here, Israel right in here, Egypt. Okay, this is Assyria. Syria, these are Israel's ancient enemies. You probably recognize some of these. Nineveh, by the way, little small Old Testament uh, reference for you. Remember how Jonah was all night? I'm not going to Nineveh. And you're like, I want to go to Nineveh. Okay, there's Nineveh. It's the capital of Assyria. It'd be like somebody saying to you, you need to go to North Korea. You're like, no. Okay, so that's kind of the picture of what Jonah was asking God to do. And then Babylon. So you get the picture. Let me put a next map up for you, which shows you today. So you can kind of get your bearings. The problem with this one is it's a little rotated, but you kind of get the picture. Okay, see, here's Israel up here, Egypt. All this is the reason we're looking at Iraq. uh, This is still Syria, Iran, all these kind of places. Okay, now go back to the old time map. All right. Now, let me give you biblical history. I'm going to talk in very sweeping years. They're not any way accurate. You're just going to kind of follow me. Okay. First of all, God calls a man named Abraham. Abraham lives in Ur. Ur. Where are you from? Ur? Ur? Yeah, Ur. Okay. Ur is down here. 
All right. It's right at the tip of where Babylon will be. God calls Abraham about 2000 BC. God calls Abraham. Abraham goes up this way, then comes down this way. And as he's walking through Israel in the promised land, God says, this is the land I'm going to give you. It's going to be yours one day. So Abraham goes all through the land. He wanders through it and he wanders so much that they start calling him a wanderer, which in the language of the day was Hebrew. They called him a Hebrew. That's what it meant. A wanderer. So Abraham's wandering all through here. And then there becomes this big famine in 2000 BC and Abraham has to go to Egypt. So he goes to Egypt and he hangs out in Egypt for a while. And then eventually God calls him back on the way back. He runs into Sodom and Gomorrah, which are here somewhere. They're destroyed. You know the story. Abraham comes back up in here. He continues to wander. Abraham has a son and uh, he has a son and he has a son and that guy has 12 sons. They become the nation of Israel. They're living in Israel for a while. They sell their brother into slavery. That brother gets sold into slavery to where? Egypt. So they go over here. So eventually there's a famine in the land and all the people have to go to Egypt. Right? So they're going to start seeing a very circular thing here called Famine, Egypt, back. All right. So they go here. There's a famine. They go down to Egypt. They live there. They live there so long. They become a great nation. Then God sends Moses, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let the people go. Okay. So they go back this way. They come back up into the promised land. Are you with me? That's around 1500 BC. All right. So David and Saul come along. They basically take over this whole region. They, Israel becomes this big, huge deal. But then they get into a fight and they split. And you have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And there's a king of Israel. There's a king of Judah. And around 600, well, let's say 700 BC, Syria invades Israel, which is north. Okay, Jerusalem's a part of Judah. So right in here, up. Syria invades them, takes them over, carries them, carries them off. Then, about 200 years later, around 580 B.C., Assyria invades Judah and destroys Jerusalem and carries them off. Then Babylon invades Assyria and takes over everything. And then all the people get taken over to here. So now they're over here in Babylon. This is Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. So you remember where, you remember where uh, Abraham was from? So now they're back over here. Okay. So then they hang out for a while. 70 years later, Cyrus the Great, who is a Persian, because these guys over here came in and they invaded, and these guys over here came in and they invaded, and then they take over, and so Cyrus goes, you guys go home, I got too many people. So they go back home, and they're back over here again, okay? So they come back, and this is the book of Nehemiah and all this kind of stuff. Now I'm switching over here so you people can see, okay? So are you seeing how this light goes? Okay, so we're here. Okay, now we're here. Now we're here. Now we're here. Right here. Oh, back over here. Okay, now we're back here. Okay, see, that's over about 2,000 years. You didn't think I could do it, did you? Okay, well, I did. So now Jesus comes along. Jesus is born in Nazareth, which is in Israel. It's way up here. But they have to go to Nazareth to be born. This is the whole Christmas story, right? Let's get Linus to tell it. And so they go south, down to Nazareth, 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 down in here into Judah. Okay, so he's born. Do you remember what happens? There is a edict, kill all the boys. So they start killing all the boys. So guess where Jesus goes? And he guesses? Egypt. Jesus goes over here. And so Jesus hangs out over here for a while. And then finally he goes back up here. To back home to Nazareth. And then he hangs out in Nazareth for a while. And then he goes back down here. And he hangs out with John the Baptist. And then he goes back up here. And he preaches for a while. And then he goes back down here. And he gets killed. And then he goes way up here, which is heaven. So <laughs> that's where he is right now. Okay. Now I know you're saying, okay, I'm not following you here. Okay, so here's what happens next. This dude up here named Alexander... 
comes down and he invades everything. If you see it on this map, Alexander conquered it. Okay, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great conquers everything. Eventually his kingdom becomes the Roman Empire. Roman Empire, why is it important? Well, because all of a sudden everybody in this region uh, speaks Greek. All right, this is actually before Jesus' time. Uh, everybody here speaks Greek. Jesus comes along and all of a sudden everybody here speaks Greek and they all know how to talk to each other. All right, so in 70 AD... Rome says, we've had it with Jerusalem, we've had it with the Jews, we're going to kill them all. They come down, and Rome was pretty good at war. They destroy Jerusalem, Jerusalem's gone. So all the Jews, have they flee, they go everywhere. They're, they're basically in this area. Okay, They're all over the place. Basically, the Jews do not have a homeland again until 1948, when Harry Truman woke up one night and went, i got a good idea. And so... They give them back this little place here, and you know the rest of the story. There's been nothing but war and all this kind of stuff. So Israel is now back in Palestine. You say, okay, Greg, that was really great and interesting, and I like the laser pointer, but what is the point of that? The first thing I want you to see is God's circular nature, right? How there's a pattern involved here. They go to leave, they come back. They go to Israel, to Egypt, they come back. They go to Babylon, they come back. They, go, they just keep coming back. Having said that, let me show you something. Let's put up this, the third map, which is the world map, okay, which is really small, but you'll follow me, okay? What we've been talking about, right in there, okay? So, Jesus dies, he's resurrected, he goes to heaven, the apostles go out, they start making disciples, Obviously, the first place the gospel takes off is right in here in the Mideast. It then spreads up into Europe toward Greece, here in Italy, especially Rome, because obviously we're studying the book of Romans. So that's where it is. Paul actually, in his letters, says he wants to go to Spain, but he never gets to uh, Spain. That was France. Spain, because he, he dies. Okay. He skipped France because he wants to evangelize them. Uh, Totally kidding. Totally kidding. Monsieur, right? All right. Now, so the gospel takes root in Europe, as you well know. Western civilization is born. Europe becomes more and more Christian. What you probably don't know is that in the early church, the head of the early church, like where the big cultural centers were, where where Christianity was really taking off was Africa. Did you know that? North Africa. The greatest Christian theologian of the early church was called Augustine. He was in North Africa. All right. Uh, you go along in Europe for a while, and then eventually the Reformation happens. Around the 1500s, they start sending out. The Catholic Church had done it before, but the New World hadn't been discovered until 1492 when Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And they start sending missionaries. John Calvin actually planted a church in Venezuela. Okay. I don't know how you, how you do that. How do you keep up with that guy? We're having a hard time. Oh, that was eight months ago. Okay, I hope it all worked out. Um, but you watch as Europe begins to decline and the gospel begins to take root in the Americas. The gospel begins to take over in the U.S., obviously. You see Catholicism take root and Christianity continue to grow here. Today, 
the center of Christianity and the explosive growth of the gospel is here in China, in the Asia. Uh, there are uh, reports in China that estimate there are 10,000 conversions a day in China, which is not that many considering there's a billion people there, right? That's like, it really is a big deal though. consider that. Now, here's what we know. We know that some of the disciples went, uh, we know some went this way, but we know, for example, Thomas, doubting Thomas, right, went to India. The gospel has made its way around the world and it's coming back this way. Guess where it's headed? Are you with me? It's coming around. It's coming back around. It's almost back to the place where there's an apostolic witness, which I don't know if God's going to give the people a second chance to hear it or if it's just going to jump straight to Israel. What I can tell you is you can look at history and watch God have a plan for his people. And you can look through history and you can watch God bringing his people to the place where they can hear. The Bible in Romans chapter 11 tells us God has a plan for Israel. But they've been hardened right now so that you can hear. But there will be a day they will be fully included. And their hardening will be lifted. And they will hear. And the gospel, it says, will come to Israel and they will be fulfilled. What that, what will that day be like? It'll be really good for some. And it'll be really bad for others. What we can know is that God has a plan for his people. And we can celebrate that not only in watching how the gospels move through history, but as we enter the Christmas season, you can remember God has a plan for his people and it started with a baby. And it's an amazing thing. Let me pray for you guys as we kind of get ready to dismiss for our break. Dave and the, the band's going to come up and lead us in a worship song and dismiss us to it. Just praising our God that he is awesome. And the way that he holds us and his gospel and his salvation.